This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the man, the myth, the legend, the president of The Witness, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Hey, man. Same old, same old. Summer's about to start as we record this, but we still on the grind. We got a lot of work. Listen, man. Listen, you've been on the grind, but let me tell you, you missed a fire episode last week Bruh. with Austin Channing Brown. Yes. I'm still here. I want to scream that every time I say it. <laughs> I was, I'm still here. Man. You know? And so it was It was crazy. We've gotten some amazing feedback on the episode. So shout out to everybody who's downloaded that. But I told Jamar when we recorded it, I called him. I was like, yo, the episode was so black. And he was and, like, uh, he was like, that's the most fun I've ever had on passing my. And then he stopped himself. He's like, uh, besides recording with you, of course. So I was like, okay, I didn't say it like right. that. Cool, I said, cool, I cool. said, basically, I did say that, but then I repented, but <laughs> not really. <laughs> no, yeah. I totally get it. She, uh, Austin Chatting Brown, is fire. We got a chance to read her book. I'm still here. So congratulations on completing that project and yes. all the great feedback is well deserved. So I'm, I'm just thrilled we have that interview on Pass the Mic. So check it out if you haven't heard it already. And for those of you who are asleep, we have the Pass the Mic live tour that's going on. And in at the time of this recording, we're about a week out from New York. New York. The Big Apple. Friday, June 1st at 7 o'clock p.m. You can go to PastorMikeLive.com for more information. I'm so excited. We have also the opportunity to meet some of you guys one-on-one at Pass the Slice. Um, <laughs> you can find out about that there as well. I love – Boa is awesome with those Boa names. It, you know, it's like Pass the Slice. I'm like, oh, but you got to check, check out the graphic we have for NYC too. It's – you know, we have the Pass the Mike fist normally gripping the microphone, but this time it's gripping like the, the torch from the Statue of Liberty and it's got our logo and everything. It's kind of cool. So shout out to LMB Creative for that. Uh, but we got all kinds of cool marketing and promotion going on. If you're in the NYC area, anywhere in like the tri-state area, hit us up, join Come us on, out. Come through. Uh, Pass the mic live in NYC. Looking forward to it. And shout out to uh, the folks with uh, Grace and Race. We're looking forward to joining with them. Yeah. Grace and Race peeps. And, you know, it's always a thing whenever we go to a PTM live tour stop, people are always wondering, what are you going to talk about? And we always throw <laughs> something out there. Some things are like obvious, but you know, actually we just want to tell you what we're going to talk about. Let's do about. it. Let's um, do it. I'm excited. Topic of discussion. Yeah. I know you excited for this. <laughs> I'm like, yo, but the topic of discussion is, is simply this. It's a question. Should we cancel Kanye? Man? Should we cancel Kanye? Bruh. So that's what we're going to talk about. And you can hear us live. We're also going to say some stuff off mic, too. We're going to cut the mics off, and we're going to talk a little bit. Um, and that's not going to be recorded. Yeah, so. Keeping it extra 100, 150 on that one. Uh, 200, homie. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we're doing something today that if you're a loyal listener, a veteran listener, pass the mic, you already are familiar with our top five. At the end of each year, we do a top five cultural artifacts. Now, this is books, 
movies, music, um, people, events, practices. It could be really anything that we've encountered in that time frame. So the rule is it doesn't have to be released in 2018. It's just something that has to have encouraged us or brought us joy in 2018. And so typically we wait to the end of the year, but we always have this conversation at the end of the year. We're like, bruh, we forgot this. We forgot that. We forgot this. We forgot that. And so we're like, why don't we do a mid-year top five? A mid-year top five of some things that have encouraged us. And we know we've had some heavy episodes. We've had some tough episodes. We've had some episodes where we dive deep into oppression and injustice and you know all these things. And so sometimes it's good to just decompress a little bit, step back, and just say, hey, man, what's encouraging us? What's actually uplifting us in this season? Who's inspiring us right now? So we're going to do a little mid-year top five. I'm excited about this. You know, Omar. it's so hard for me, honestly, to do it because we're, or at least I'm always so focused on like these deep, heavy topics is really hard. Exactly. Listen, y'all, this is what I say. This is what I always say. It's my new phrase for Jamar. Jamar always trying to make everything roots. Okay. <laughs> so everything is roots with Jamar. Okay. So if y'all say, <laughs> I'm going to say it in New York, I promise you, it'll be like, bro, why are you always trying to make stuff roots, man? Everything's got to be roots. Everything's got to be how I got over. Everything's got to be, you know, a, a Negro spiritual. And I'm like, Jamar, can we just come on, bro? Let's just laugh. Let's read <laughs> comics. But I will say this. Jamar is good at finding comedy. You are good at finding comedic stuff. So I'm guessing at least one of these five is going to be something funny. Uh, Yeah, let's go with that. Oh, here we go. Here we go. I'm just going to be like lynching the memorial. Like, bro, we know that. Okay, so, so on that note, why don't you go first? What's what's your And this okay. is in no particular order. Or do you want to do honorable mention first? Or you want to save that to the end? We can say that to the end. Okay. All right. So, Jamar, go ahead and go first. All right. So, this one is a cultural artifact having to do with music. Uh, I had not been... I, I was late to the game on this artist. Anybody who's listened to her before knows she's fire, but I just got turned on to her music with the latest album, and it is Janelle Monet's Dirty Computer. She is <laughs> off the chain. Oh my Jamar, gosh. Jamar, bruh. Jamar, you out here listening to Dirty Computer, bruh? Are you? Did you have you heard the album? Look, man, no, man. <laughs> Am I not supposed bro, to? this is to already it? crazy, bro. You out here listening to Dirty Computer? Am I not supposed to listen to it? I don't know the rules I'm here. Just I just to, listen, like I'm just good trying music. to figure out is Jamar is Jamar out here vibing? Oh See, my gosh! Look, you you were out here you were out here reading books on lynching. And then you start vibing to Dirty Computer. Okay, I just don't think it One fits. led to the other because while I do that, I listen to music. And I was just okay, like okay. scrolling through new releases and whatnot. Like, and I'm like, let me check out this Janelle Monet. I've been hearing a lot about her. You know, she's got an amazing style, both fashion-wise and from what I had heard about her music-wise. So I said, let me check this out for myself. And from the first strains of the first song, I was hooked. She's so eclectic with it. She's all yeah, Afro she's with it. Um, but she's got a beautiful singing voice, but she can also spit rhymes. And it's just it's just this modern futuristic and part of it's fun. You know, she's talking about just like being a kid and laughing and whatnot. But part of it's deep. She's making statements about the current state of race relations in, in the U.S. And it's just it's a it's a complex layered album that, of course, is she's not. You know, it's not a Christian album. So, you know, 
proceed a joint with called that dirty computer it's a dirty computer bro it's got it's some not- <laughs> every song on here is labeled with e for explicit um so i get it all right i'm not commending every theme she talks about from a christian perspective but no nah, man i give you props for listening jamar you know, aesthetically it's amazing Man, that's crazy. If if you would have told me anything that Jamar would have said first, it would not have been. <laughs> Why is that like so unexpected though? <laughs> I, I just never would have thought. Number one, like I don't know. I I never would have thought you would have got into Janelle Monae in particular. I feel like you'd be someone else, like a a different type of artist, like um, Roots. Huh? You thought I was gonna be all Roots with? Nah, with nah, music. not even that. Like even <laughs> someone like someone more, um less modern i guess you know more like nostalgic okay i felt like that's what you would have been but man that's dope bro okay okay <laughs> huh yeah so you threw me off with that one okay so okay, let me start with a song too i'll start with music there is a song by an artist named corn hawthorne and the song is entitled won't he do it it's off the green leaf soundtrack and when i tell you this has been my jam for the last few weeks we have this running thing where we talk about, you know, kind of these black church phrases and how these black church phrases are really interesting. And so they're like funny in a lot of ways. And so if you're a part of a black church context, or if you even grew up in the black community, some of these are just natural and indigenous to our community in general, apart from faith. But won't he do it is one of those phrases, right? It's one of those phrases that everyone knows. And it's really interesting because it's, it's the song is so upbeat. It's like this perfect mix of the old and the new. It's like this perfect mix of nostalgia with that phrase and like this modern interpretation of it. And so you can tell this young lady is very um, young. She's very vibrant. She also has roots within the church. And so the the really interesting part about this is it's an anthem that kind of builds your faith. And so the chorus goes, won't he do it? He said he would. Fight your battles for you. They're going to wonder how you sleep at night. Won't he do it? Oh, yes, he will. Anybody tell you something different, you know that's a lie. And then she goes on to say, you're going to look back and be so amazed how it turned out. It's only his grace. Won't he do it? He said he would. So I trust him at all times. And in this in this season, man, bruh, you got to do that, man. bruh. I mean, this is just like a... It's like an on time, like, yo, the Lord is going to move. The Lord is going to show up and show out another black church phrase. And I think it's good for us to build our faith. And yes, you know, we know there's deep theology and uh, sovereignty and all that. But um, yeah, so at at the end of all that, sometimes you just need a song that's going to get you through the night. I mean, that was. Sometimes you just need a song that's going to get you through the night. That's a word of encouragement right there. You just flip that song on and you're like, okay, I I can do it. I can take another step. And everything's going to work out. I don't know how, but I trust God who's who's working things out in his own way, in his own time. Absolutely. Dope, man. Okay, so number two for you. All right. So number two for me, I'm going to stick with the black women in music theme. It was Beyonce at Coachella. Bruh, how did I forget Beyonce and Coachella? Bruh, I'm so mad at myself. Man. I want to cut this podcast off right now. No, no, no. Look, we tag teaming. We tag teaming. Bruh, how did I forget Beyonce and Coachella? That was bruh. a moment. Oh, my goodness. Like, it was it bruh. was black, black, and it was all the way black. And it was black, black in a forum that ain't seen it before. It wasn't constructed to be it ever. And it was, mm. it was such mm. a testament to Beyonce's star power strategy awareness 
where she's reached a level as an artist where she can go into literally any venue. I mean, Coachella is not known <laughs> for being like this, this bastard. Uh, yeah, she pointed that out. Right. Too. <laughs> um, where she yeah. can go into any venue and challenge or change the whole culture of the event just by what she chooses to do or not choose. And she was on fire. I think it was like a two hour performance. She was on the go almost the entire time. Costume changes. She brought in elements from uh, black stepping, uh, like like on college campuses and whatnot. She had a whole new yeah. logo Do design yeah. uh, along those lines, like a like a sorority. Uh, she had a choir. It was it was an experience, and of course, she does marketing better than just about anyone. And so this thing was broadcast live, broke the internet while it was on there. People were on Twitter going wild, and it was just this amazing scene of a star who's made made it to the epitome of fame and wealth and everything that goes along with it and is still using her music to celebrate her culture and her roots. So I was just like, wow, that's that was so much fun. Yo, so the crazy thing is I was actually up. I don't really remember why I was up because it was a, a Saturday leading into a Sunday and I have no idea why Maybe I was still up. up. I don't think I could sleep. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't want to blame it on Trinity, but I think I think there's a possibility that's what happened. But I remember I was like, people were like, Beyonce's getting ready to come on on Coachella. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, when, you know, I'm up, I'm reading, I'm just kind of doing some studying. So I guess I'll just listen to this real quick. And bro, when I tell you I was not ready, like I was not ready for how intricate it was. I was not ready for how amazing the arrangements were. And so there was this really cool video that I watched that showed how she like matched tempo and how she matched vocals and how she was transitioning the songs and how she did, she chose this song because it was in the same key as that song. And she chose this song, but she did it halftime to lead into oh that gracious. song. It's like, yeah. bruh, how in the world? And you just, you're thinking about it. And you're like, man, this is incredible. But the best moment for me was when Beyonce swag. When when they did when they did the swag surf, bro. Hey, if you're not familiar with the swag surf, just go ahead and you know go to YouTube and and look it up because it's just something that we do at events, at concerts, at graduations. I mean, it's just something that is so intrinsically. It's almost it's weird. Like I don't want to say it's like quote unquote spiritual, but it's like this communal connection. But it feels like really deep because you can find people in in so many different cities in the South and across the country. And you might not know them, but you'll swag surf with them. And so her doing that in that moment, bringing swag surf to, to Coachella was incredible. And then part of me was like, man, you know, these people don't even deserve this because it's like, they don't want, you know, cause That's they don't exactly even know. Like, right. I feel like we That's would just right. be like going nuts if it was a predominantly black audience. If that was a predominantly black audience. Oh my gracious. You know, it's like preaching uh, it's like preaching at a white church, and we'll talk about this. That's one of my cultural artifacts. But, you know, when you're used to preaching in an environment where you hear something back from the congregation and uh, you go somewhere where that's not the norm, and even though you might be preaching just some amazing biblical encouraging or whatever content, you just get like this this very tepid you know, subdued response. When it would pan to the audience at Coachella, I'm like, what are y'all doing? Do you well, see they probably this woman on catching, stage? They probably She's weren't catching all it. the stuff. So they were. They probably weren't catching the references 
They probably weren't catching the stepping. They probably okay. weren't catching, you know, when she did, oh man, I, I think the most powerful moment obviously was when she did the Black National Anthem, when she did Lift Every Voice. And yes. so that was just like, whoa. Yes, which I'm an advocate of. And you're like, oh, you keep nah, it roots. man, that was dope. I'm, saying, I'm, just, man. I'm just saying everything don't have to be roots. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with it. Like, that's cool. Like, but as long as we can swag surf too, I think that's, see, that's like the perfect mix. (laughs) We can lift every voice and we can swag surf. Absolutely. But Beyonce says something. Listen, she said, she was like, well, she mentioned it and she, she cursed when she said it, but it was, it was funny when she was talking about like, man, can you believe I'm the first black woman at Coachella? And to to headline (laughs) Coachella. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like that is, that is nuts. But see, that's what's so incredible about her performance is that she knew she, where she was going, right? And she didn't change her her content uh, or, or or what she wanted to do because the audience was going to have a cultural gap. And I just think that's 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 so much courage, right? Like, can I have that much courage if I go into a room full of people I know aren't going to understand my vernacular or mm-hmm. my references or whatnot? Um, you bring it full so circle, like, brother. Go, girl. You bring it full circle. <laughs> you better watch. <laughs> you say you go. You silly, bro. You silly. Man. Okay, so it you was got, inspiring. You got Beyonce at Coachella. I, I'll go number two on my end is Exodus preaching the book by Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert. Yes, say that. Say that. Listen, man. We had Dr. Kenyatta Gilbert shameless plug on past the mic earlier this year. He is a homiletics professor at Howard University School of Divinity. And I went ahead and purchased Exodus Preaching and he autographed it for me, which was really an amazing moment for me personally, because I've looked up to Dr. Gilbert's research, as you guys heard in the podcast. But when I got the book, you know, you expect a book to be good. That book is incredible. Like it's so it's it's not even it's not even that long. And I was like, man, this is kind of this is a short book. It's pretty short. And when I started reading it, I was like this might be my favorite preaching book ever. And that is saying a lot. (laughs) That is saying a lot considering some of the amazing preaching books that have been put out um, in all communities, but particularly in the black Christian community. But what makes this book so good is it feels like a manual for addressing current cultural social issues within the Christian pulpit ministry context. And so as he's talking to us about giving us examples of this is how someone talks about environmental racism within the context of scripture, within the context of God's created order. This is how someone talks about the realities of brutality and mass incarceration. This is how someone talks about the value of the black body. And from a number of different angles and perspectives, he's able to paint this picture of what it could look like for us to preach about these things and remain faithful to the gospel. And so that's kind of the difficult part is a lot of people say, well, you can't talk about these things and remain faithful to the gospel. And the reason they say that is because they've never seen it. And so because Mm -hmm. they've never seen it and because they don't know that the black church has been doing that for centuries, that black religion has incorporated those matters of justice and equity and dignity since its inception, then they think it's not possible. And so Dr. Gilbert is showing just this, he's broadening the bounds of our imagination And he does it in such a great way. He does it by also paying homage to the young greats. And I I absolutely love this portion of it is he does like this roll call of all the ministers and pastors and aspiring academics and scholars within the black Christian community. 
and he just bigs, you know, he bigs them up and he just says, hey, this person in, in Nashville, this person in Chicago, this person in Miami. And he talks about them in a way that's so honoring, but also sheds light on their work. And one of the things that people say is, you know, well, the black church is not really as relevant as it was before. And that's just because on, you man. haven't heard of these people. On, like man. nobody's nobody's giving you names. Like you're so accustomed to going to white centered, Euro centered um, pieces of literature. You're so accustomed to going to Euro centered centered publishing houses. You're so accustomed to going to Euro centered Christian bookstores. You're so accustomed to that that you just don't see black authors. And so you think, oh, well, the black church is just caught up in this prosperity stuff. And it's like, no, like there's there's a wide range of ministers that are faithful within that context. So Dr. Gilbert, for those reasons and so many more, bro, I just love the book Exodus Preaching. And you should definitely go get it. If you're a pastor, doesn't matter if you're in a black context or not, I think it'll really encourage you and challenge you. Absolutely, man. I love hearing you talk about preachers and preaching and books about preaching because I liken it to, you know, how I get, I just like geek out about historians and, and academic history and whatnot. Hearing you talk about preachers and preaching and, and sermon um, construction and themes and whatnot, it strikes me the same way, how, how you have, you know, a love for it, an experience with it, but also, you know, you want to learn how it works. You want to not only constantly improve yourself, but study it as an art in and of itself. And that love just comes out and it's contagious, right? Like I, I don't, I've, or I have the book. I think I, I have a uh, electronic copy, but I haven't read it yet because mm-hmm. I got all this other stuff. So it makes me even more excited to read it. And it's definitely moving to the top of my list. Man, Black Preaching introduced me to Jesus. So <laughs> that's why it's close to my heart. Tweet that, tweet that. Look, man, it did. It was, it was the first articulation of who, of who Jesus is. Like, so that's, that's why it means so much to me, and and I've seen it change so many lives outside of mine as well. Yeah, and it's been that way for millions of Black people throughout generations and throughout the incredible racism, white supremacy, and hardship that we've had to endure. Black preaching, God has used it uh, to to introduce people to Himself. So it's amazing, right there. And sort of following right along with that, my number three is. Bishop Michael Curry preaching at oh, the yeah, royal wedding. <laughs> it oh, was man. hilarious, right? It was it was it was similar yes. to Beyonce at Coachella in that he was in a context where the group assembled had very little background exposure, didn't know what to do with this black preacher from Chicago coming over to England for the royal wedding, right? Mm-hmm. And preaching. You know, he didn't do this staid, very formal um and and subtle and subdued sort stiff. of stiff. Just call it stiff, bro. Just stiff call it stiff. Exposition. Exactly. <laughs> he preached, man. He was he he didn't he didn't hoop, but he was preaching. He was using vernacular. He referenced the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. He talked, mm-hmm. he, he, he did the, he did the repetition of the phrase, love did this, love did this, love did this. It was, it, and he went for 13 minutes and people thought it was long. So half of what it was so exceptional was like the way people reacted. Um, and it was sort of two sides. It was the side that had very little exposure to black preaching. And they were like, what is this? And honestly, yeah, there were some there were some critics, but honestly, most of what I saw from the people who didn't have much experience with black preaching was appreciation. 
I mean, it was like, I'm new to this kind of appreciation. Like, oh, that was really good. Um, but it was more positive than negative that I saw, even though there was, you know, there's always going to be trolls out there. But then on the other side, and this sort of this sort of irked me a little bit, was like, even among black people, this idea that, um, you know, the that black preaching was still relevant and like that's a revelation. Like it's yeah. always been relevant. <laughs> it's always been powerful. It's always been timely. And so I'm like, where have you been? Is the question. Not where has black preaching been? And so, mm. like, mm. you know, especially in the past several years with the, you know, the 21st century black civil rights movement and freedom struggle, it hasn't been nearly so church-based, at least explicitly, as the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. And so there was this sense that, you know, people in the contemporary age, even black people, they're not really paying attention to the church, don't see it as relevant to today's mm-hmm. contemporary protest. But I'm like, nah, y'all got it wrong if that's the way you're thinking of it. And and I'll just say this one last thing. I'll make, I think, I'm increasingly convinced that the argument that today's civil rights movement is less religious than in the past has some major holes in it. I think it looks different. I don't think it's as Talk insti- about that, bro. Talk I don't think it's it. as institutionally based as the 50s and 60s, meaning, you know, churches themselves are sponsoring it. But to say it's not religious or, or not even Christian is very erroneous. Uh, a very low-hanging example, the Poor People's Campaign, headed by uh, Reverend William Barber and uh, Liz Theo Harris, both ministers, uh, they're leading, leading clergy in protest. Uh, but even if you look at other more local protests, um, whether it's the NAACP or Black Lives Matter or other organizations, these are still religious people. These are still Christians who, because of their Christianity, Mm -hmm. we spoke to Bree Newsom and had the pleasure of interviewing her. She's avowedly and outspokenly Christian. And that's part of what motivated her to climb a flagpole and take down the Confederate flag in South Carolina. So I think it's there. It's more on an individual basis than an institutional one a lot of times. But we need to interrogate that assumption that today's civil rights movement is somehow less religious or less Christian than before. Man, that's so good, bro. You you listen. That man said, when love is the way, poverty will become history. Shoot. Like, that's <laughs> that's how I knew he was preaching. That I said, oh, true. no. Oh, no. Don't be up here talking to the, to the royal family like this, man. Uh, it was funny. I think it's 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 a, an experience. The reason why I connected with Bishop Curry's uh, particular message in his delivery is it's an experience I'm in frequently. So I'm frequently in a place of preaching in predominantly white settings. And so when I step into those settings... I don't want to be like self-conscious about that, but I have to always calculate. I I know certain things. And we were recently just talking about this um, with a couple of friends. I think it was yesterday. And we were talking about just this reality of, you know, hey, when I step into this place, I know that people are going to be skeptical of me. And so I know that even if I've preached here before, I have to basically prove my theological acumen pretty early. Oh, man. Like, I yes. can, I know I have to do that. I know I have to say, you know, yes, I, I can hand over text. I, I have to, you know, mention little things to basically earn credibility with my audience. It's not about impressing my audience. It's about earning credibility enough to be heard. 
And so then as it progressively goes on, I, I know at the beginning, I have to, you know, as one person has said, you know, speak the the king's English to the queen's taste, you know, like I, uh. <laughs> the king's speech to the queen's taste, mm. right? Like, so I have to do that because I recognize I, I you will t- tune me out. Like you will have pretext to tune me out. Um, and so I have to do that at the beginning, but then eventually who I am will always come out. Like who I am, I can't suppress. And so seeing Bishop Curry do that, and people are like, he's going to knock down the candles. He's a, No, this is what it looks like for someone to be so moved by a message that they're preaching that they involve their heart, their soul, their mind, and their body. Like they're, 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 the best preachers they use, that, right? it's fully embodied. <laughs> I said there was a verse that says something about that, right? You should love the Lord your God. Exactly, bro. Everything. All all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, right? And I think it's really important for us to to acknowledge that. And so if if we're, you know, some people would say, you know, man, it doesn't take all that. You know, we were at an event and and they were saying that, man, it doesn't it doesn't even take you you raising your voice and getting involved. It doesn't take all that. And I'm saying, man, you know, I, I don't I don't see how it how it works without it. Personally, um, you don't have to do it like me. I don't have to do it like you. But man, if if this is the salvation of of sinners you know, to, to a righteous and holy God who is who is good and who lavishes gifts on us and great what like how are you gonna sit how are you gonna sit still yeah. if he, his fire shut up in my bones great man and greatly to be praised um don't get me started out here bro we talking about we talking too much about black <laughs> you can't talk too much about preach. it no we got to talk more about it you know that's the same thing uh David's wife said when when he danced before the ark she said it don't take all that bro put your shirt back on what you doing they were like mm, no you 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 don't know like i know <laughs> don't know. listen let's move on bro yeah. you know, about to about to have a shout session up in here man listen my number three is a, a clothing line what it's called we apparel yes it is a clothing line called we apparel and i bought a couple of shirts from them and followed them and it started by a man named Kareem Manuel, and Kareem is someone that I met years ago. I don't even know if he remembers me, but um, I follow Kareem, and he's just a brilliant entrepreneur. Um, he's a humanitarian. He's a designer. He's a creative. And the we in We Apparel stands for we are the ones we are waiting for. No one else is coming. We are already here. It is you and I, united, together, resolved. And so he has incredible clothing. I'm telling you, it's nuts. It's weapparel.co. And man, it's just been, it's been dope to interact with it. And it's such a statement and it's such a conversation starter. Because a lot of people have asked me, they'll walk up to me, they're like, I see we on your shirt. Like, what does we mean? Because it's an inclusive, like communal message. And so people are like, what does this mean? Like, and people are looking for camaraderie. People are looking for community. So like, what does it mean when you say we? And I'll always be like, man, we're the ones we've been waiting for. And they're like, hmm, that's interesting. And they're like, what does that mean to you? And so it starts this incredible conversation about the gospel and about our response to a broken and a fallen world, how it's our job as Christians, as image bearers, um, to make sure that we're redeeming and restoring the world to what it should be. 
And what does that look like in all areas, not just in the political space, not just in a justice space, but in the arts, in fashion, in food, in all these amazing things that that God created and he has his hand in. So shout out to Kareem and We Apparel. I love their stuff, man. I'm about to buy their shorts. Um, uh, don't tell my wife. But yeah, budget. so I'm about to spend some money and get them shorts. Uh, no, I love that, man. It, it, and it goes along with something we, we've talked about offline is just like this flowering of protest music. Um where we're in a, a moment where people are awakened and aware of injustices going on right now, and they want to use their talents to bring about justice and equality in in their own various ways. And so whether that's through music and song or through apparel, uh, you can use any sort of cultural artifact, as, as uh, um, Andy Crouch would, would call it, and make a statement with it, do something that, that matters and is lasting. And it's not just out to make a buck, but is actually out to convey a message. So I love it when artists of various sorts do that. So nice work. All right. Number four for you, bro. Okay. So the, the next couple are a little on the heavier side. Here he go. Uh, Here roots. That's why I had to preface it. <laughs> All right. All right. But this one is not for for what you think it's going to be. So my my number four is MLK 50. That is the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination and murder. So um, that was 1968 on April 4th. And then uh, 2018 was the 50th anniversary of that. And Memphis is where it occurred. He was on the balcony at the Lorraine Motel and a gunman shot him. In the neck died shortly thereafter. So in Memphis, there were all these events taking place. And we went there, Bo and I, as the witness. And we went to the events hosted by the National Civil Rights Museum. So there were all these other organizations doing their own thing. But we we wanted to go to the one hosted by the National Civil Rights Museum, which is built right off of the Lorraine Motel. And if you've never been to that museum in Memphis, it's absolutely worth the trip. It's it's a powerful, powerful journey, really, through the civil rights movement. They did a masterful job just pulling it off. Uh, this was one of the reasons why I don't think we can simply say the current civil rights movement is not as religious, because it was like having church. I mean, when we went to some of the assemblies, uh, Jesse Jackson was there. And at one point, he was doing call and response. Uh, in between, they were doing responsive readings. And this is a this is a public or secular museum. You know, this is not church necessarily, but because it was so black centric, um, it, it centered the black experience. It centered black speakers that just kind of naturally came out because it's so embedded in our culture. And so that was refreshing to see. It was refreshing to see what the current movement looks like. So the first event we went to was sort of a behind the scenes um, uh, event for the press. And there were four speakers. All of them were women and three out of the four were black women. And I said, I love that. That's a perfect representation Mm -hmm. of the 21st century civil rights movement, where in the 50s and 60s, it was black male clergy um, and it was very patriarchal. Uh, you had women like Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker who weren't given as much of a voice or a platform. Uh, but now there's there's a shift and black women are taking their rightful place as leaders in in the justice movement. So that was wonderful to see. And then the last part that that makes MLK 50 such an important cultural artifact for me was 
you know, when we changed our name from Rand to The Witness, we were clear on what we did not want to be or what we were moving away from. It was a little bit fuzzier for me as to what we were becoming or what we were moving toward. And when we went to MLK 50, that got a lot clearer. And Bo brought up this phrase that I love and have used ever since, and it's called amplifying activism. So we want to be involved, not just in like racial reconciliation. Hey, let's go out and have a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Even though if you're black there, you might get kicked out. That's a whole other story. Um, wow, bro. Just going straight there. Huh? You just putting it out there. It's an honorable mention for me. But anyway, um, it's not just about this interpersonal reconciliation. It's about bringing justice um, to unjust and imbalanced systems and structures. And so that's what we were about, but we want to do it from a Christian standpoint. And while we were at MLK 50, we just got to interact with all these activists. So I got to meet Bernice King, daughter of Martin Luther King Jr., who's an outspoken activist in her own right. I got to meet some of the investigative journalists there. Uh, We did an interview with Wendy C. Thomas, who's done really interesting work uh, on income inequality and fair wages in Memphis and sort of a continuation of what the sanitation strike and the poor people's campaign were all about. I got to meet Beverly Daniel Tatum, who wrote the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Uh, it, it was just a wonderful opportunity. I heard from John Lewis and and other civil rights activists. And I was like, this is where we want to be as the witness. We want to be covering these kinds of events. We want to be shedding light on the kind of justice movements and activism that's happening now. And we want to say, Christians, this is for you. You can get involved and you can be salt and light, even if these aren't explicitly Christian organizations. So that's why it was just a really important event for me. Yeah. And it actually ties into my number four, which is my visit to the National Civil Rights Museum. Um, It was crazy. It was actually a four-day justice pilgrimage that I was a part of. But that point in particular was so striking for me. It was weird because, you know, sometimes you go to a place and it's a sunny day. That day was kind of overcast and it was scattered showers here and there. And it felt honestly perfect for the somber nature of how I interacted with the material there. And so we came up from, we didn't come up from the hotel side, like we came up from the opposite side. So we came up from the place where the the new Lorraine Motel sign is. And so we came up there and then there's this big mural where there's, you know, all these great historic uh, figures of activism and justice. And then I am a man is, is, you know, sprawled across that wall. And so I'm walking up and I'm like, man, where's the, because I see the, the motel over there, the motel sign. And so I walk up and as soon as you turn the corner, boom, the reef is there and that's the place where Dr. King was shot and killed. And that was, I was not ready for that. It was so jarring and abrupt. Yeah. And it felt like the air, it felt like the air was just completely sucked out of that little space and everything slowed down. And man, I just, I cried, man. I cried, I wept because I recognized just kind of the weight of the moment. It's heavy. It's, it's sacred ground for us. And I think sometimes we just forget, you know, just sometimes we just say, ah, Dr. King was killed and we pass over it. And it's like, no, this man was brutally murdered. Like he was brutally murdered, a husband, a father, 
um, a leader of men and women, someone who loved people. He was brutally murdered in broad daylight. Yeah. I think we should say that sometimes. Yeah. Well, that's something um, Bernice King, his daughter, brought out. She spoke at that first event I mentioned, and she said, you know, to you, you like the general public, um, a civil rights leader was killed. For us, dad was killed. Mm-hmm. And she was like, that's yeah. been, you know, family trauma that we've experienced and lived with. And if you can imagine anyone who's experienced a death in the family having that grief publicly displayed and then having everyone and anyone who wants to to comment on it. Um, and I put this in the book, but there's an in- incident of uh, a black guy who's a civil rights activist in Mississippi when he was in college, he went to a predominantly white evangelical college, and he was in school when uh, Dr. King was assassinated. And he remembers hearing about it on the news. And at first, they just said he had been shot. They didn't know if he was alive or dead. Mm-hmm. When the new, and so he went into his room and just closed the door just to be there and await, you know, the fate of of this you know, movement leader. And he was in his room and over the radio, he heard the news that King had been killed. And he says down the hall, he heard his classmates cheering and laughing. Goodness gracious. Hmm. So have your father killed and then to have people celebrate his death, this man who stood for love and the beloved community. I just can't even fathom. Gracious. Hmm. Man, I was not ready. Wow. There was this moment that I've been telling people about that I really wanted to um, just kind of share with you guys briefly before we get into the last cultural artifact. But there was this moment where I was sitting uh, across from the wreath and the hotel room. And I actually had to turn my back to it because it was just so heavy. And there was this older gentleman that was walking and he was he was walking. And he was laboring around. He was kind of looking and he looked up at the wreath and the room, and he just shook his head, and he kind of took this deep sigh, like the sigh of decades of going through this stuff. And um, it just struck me because I watched him, and I just watched his reaction. And then we go inside, and you know, it's a big group of us, and so we're just milling through the uh, National Civil Rights Museum and the exhibits, and um, we get to this place where they're talking about Brown v. Board of Education, and I kind of leaned up against the wall, sat down, And then that same gentleman kind of walks in and he walks in and he's looking up at the wall of exhibits and the wall of, you know, just seeing all this oppression and he shakes his head. And then we exchange glances really quickly. And I, you know, I just, I shook my head too. And I just kind of raised my eyebrows at him and he did that sigh again and shook his head and then kind of slowly walked and labored um, away And right as he was getting ready to walk away, a young man who works at the National Civil Rights Museum, had to have been in his 20s, um, he's walking up and he walks up very quickly and puts his arm around the man and shakes his hand and looks him in the eye and says, we got to keep fighting because we're going to get there one day. We're going to get there one day, man. Yeah. And the old man looks back at him and says, yes, we will. And I could tell in that moment, it was just this beautiful generational exchange of love right. and respect and how the younger generation is called to pull the older generation up, to honor them, to respect them, 
to care for them, but at the same time to say, we're not done. Just give us the baton. We're ready. Like, mm-hmm. let's do this. Mm-hmm. And it was just this beautiful moment that I'll never forget. It was one of, I think personally, and I don't want to over sentimentalize it, but it was really one of the defining moments I think of my life um, because I think it showed just everything that I've been leading up to is that, the the, the baton pass. Are we ready to, to take the baton? And if we're not, we need to get ready because we got to keep fighting. There's more work to be done, man. So yeah, so, the National Civil Rights Museum, brother. So you're the one who took it to roots. Okay. Hey man, if you take it there, I gotta I gotta I gotta go I mean, there with baby, you. You know what I'm saying? There. You so. took it there. <laughs> um All right, so you number five, last the one. Last one actually has to do with I think taking up the baton. There you go. So it's it's a book. Roots, roots. It's a book I read. <laughs> <laughs> It's a book I read by James Foreman Jr., who's the son of a civil rights activist, James Foreman. And the book is called Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. Bruh, I just got that book. That's a good book, bro. Um, It just won the Pulitzer Prize in 2018 for uh, nonfiction. And and so it's being recognized more and more. Just kidding. Um, It's... uh, it's it's being widely recognized for its its very provocative and I think helpful thesis, which is simply that uh, James Foreman. I actually had a chance to to interview him a couple of times, and he says part of the impetus behind the book was that as he was reading all of these books on criminal justice reform, uh, black people were only mentioned sort of incidentally. They were either the people incarcerated whose voices you seldom heard, or they were maybe like the families of of the incarcerated people. Um, So people who had been essentially somehow victimized or were in the system. And he said, well, what about all of the black people who weren't in prison or weren't in the criminal justice system? What were they saying and doing? And he had experience as a public defender, as a lawyer. So he had, you know, upfront experience with the criminal justice system and the dysfunction they're in. And what he does is in that book is explore the role of the black community, black leaders and officials, as well as everyday citizens in supporting the policies and the laws that actually led to mass incarceration. And so it's very interesting. It's not just like white racists who are who are like inflicting. Come on, talk about it, bro. Talk about it. It it was black communities themselves. But, you know, my mind immediately jumped in that thesis to, well, is he is he like blaming black people for their own problems and all this? stuff? He's not doing that at all. What he's showing is that given limited options and uh, limited resources, Black leaders and officials and decision makers tended to favor things like harsher punishments, uh, longer sentences, three strikes and you're out, um, you know, cracking down on marijuana use, all these things that are that, that people are taking a second look at now and saying, hey, this isn't helpful. But black people favored it for different reasons. It wasn't necessarily that that like some other folks, they just assumed black criminality or that they were a threat. But this was happening in their own neighborhoods, in their own communities. So they're looking right, around, right. there's gang activities, there's drugs and, and all of this stuff. And they're saying, well, how do we sort of take control of our communities and make sure that these are places of flourishing? And given the options that they had or, or knew of at the time, they chose these harsher policing and, and criminal justice practices. So he just looks at that. 
And the reason why that's a huge cultural artifact for me is actually from something that's not explicitly in the book. It happened during a Q&A at a lecture I attended where he was speaking. And somebody asked, what can non-lawyers do to affect criminal justice reform? And he's like, get to know your local prosecutor, the district attorney. And that started me on a trajectory that has led to some really interesting places. And so um, long story short, I learned much more about it. I've written some articles. One article is going to come out in uh, Sojourners in their next issue. So I'm looking forward to that. But then it got me even involved in the local process. So I had Unbeknownst to me, these elections happen every four years, and just so happened that this uh, past month in April, we had uh, elections for the district attorney for the region where I live in. Mm. And so I just noticed a yard sign one day, and I was like, wait a minute, I need to know where. So I ended up talking to both candidates um, personally, getting their take, and and was able to make an informed decision. But I, I can't even remember, you know, I may have checked a box like on a, you know, a slate of candidates for district attorney, but I never right. looked into it. Right. And so this was the first time. Bro, right. that's huge. so important. Oh my goodness. Wow. Dude, that's so good. Yeah, I'm enjoying that book, man. It's really challenging, but it's also really an excellent analysis of of kind of that period. A very important book for everyone to read. All right. So my last one, and I'll close this out with this, man. I don't want it to be heavy, but I guess you know it is what it is. But but my number five is is oh, fatherhood. Right, it's yes. fatherhood. Uh, yeah, man. So I, just as a disclaimer, man, I recognize you know fatherhood and and parenting is is a difficult topic for a lot of people. You know, just simply because some people desire kids but cannot have kids. You know, there's just the reality that you know whether miscarriages or or other things that have prevented people from having children, just infertility. And um, I just want to let you know that we see you like we we don't we don't discard you in this conversation. We don't dismiss you. We don't look past you in our joy, but we also mourn with you. Um, but for those of us who have had this, just the unique privilege and blessing of being blessed to be parents and particularly fathers, there is absolutely nothing like it. And I think there is a very special um there's a special capacity in my heart that I feel that I hadn't had before. And it's something that, you know, people have said, even in your singleness, you should be, you know, spiritually leading people. And I, I think I had heard that and it was something that I didn't really embrace in my singleness. Like I tried to in some ways, but I didn't really know what that looked like. And looking at my daughter, like I see that now, I see what it looks like. There is... um an inundation of love. There's an inundation of concern and fear. Um, you know, I told people, and I even wrote this in the article in The Witness, when we talked about, you know, just Black fatherhood in Black Panther, that as soon as I held my daughter, I I didn't understand how men could run away, but in the same sense, huh. I could. Like, it was just like this, <laughs> huh. I get it, but I don't get it. Like, I, I can never, how could you run away from something so beautiful? But it's so much weight that it crushes some people. Um, and that's not an excuse. It's just one of those things where I just kind of looked at it. I'm like, bro, I, I actually get this because the weight of failure when a life depends on you, like my daughter doesn't know what she's going to do when she gets up. Like she looks to us. She's like, what do I do? Like, <laughs> are you going to change me? Are you going to feed me? Are you going to... And you know all this beforehand, but it's it's there's nothing that replaces just seeing and experience the pressure of it, experiencing the pressure of it, the weight of it. 
Um, but it's also just taught me so much about ways that I'm not ways that I've been selfish and ways that I have thought about things Mm. that don't matter. And when you see your kid, you kind of see that, man, 95% of the stuff we talk about, like a lot of the stuff that we're doing with our free Mm. time doesn't matter. It's distractions. You know, a lot of the stuff that we're doing with our money, like our spare money, it's just a waste, you know? Um, And I say (laughs) that right after I'm going to go buy these shorts from We Apparel, but you know, it is what it is, you know, for the culture. But I just think it's just hilarious, you know, now to see the reordering of my priorities and how it happened so quickly. And I said, well, can't do this anymore. Can't do that anymore. Don't want to do that. And now even the calculations that we have to make in small areas, um, it just shows me the a glimpse, not into how much God loves us, because I think that's that's obvious, but I think also into the sacrifices that mm. must be made for us like to survive and thrive. Like we don't, we can't really quantify the cost of giving up your son. Like I can't mm-hmm. imagine giving up my daughter. And so now thinking about what that actually means um, in light of, of our little human flawed conception of, of interacting with parenting. Um, it just knocks me back, man. I wake up every morning. I have this moment with my wife or alone when someone asks me, man, how's your daughter? you know, how's Trinity? I'm like, yo, I'm a dad. Like, it's just that moment of realization. Like, I've got a daughter. Like, no, you know? Yeah. Like, are you, are you sure? Like, is this for real? Like, is this like a 90 day policy? Like what's going on here? You know? Um, but man, I'm just absolutely loving it. And I'm just so thankful, um, that I can, I can learn so much and, and grow up, man. It's a, it's a grow up moment, getting ready to turn 30. So it's like one of those things where you kind of look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, Time to adult, homie. Time to adult. Got to get this thing in. So awesome. fatherhood is it for well, me. Well, that's a positive note, a great note to end on, man. I love these things. And it's so helpful to do this in the middle of the year because there's no way we could pack it all in one time at the end. We even got some honorable mentions that we didn't get to. So maybe we'll throw that out in a bonus episode. But yeah, take a take a moment if you're listening to this to just kind of review, you know, go back through your timeline or your emails or your calendar. Yeah, tag us in it, man. PTM top five. Hashtag PTM top five. Want to hear from you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.